welcome to the Keenan Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Leslie Kamenoff. Leslie started yoga in the late 1970s with the Shivananda School of Yoga. He studied extensively over many traditional approaches, including with TKB Desikachar, the son of Krishnamacharya. He's co-authored the seminal Yoga Anatomy book with Amy Matthews in 2007, which has now sold over a million copies and been translated into 23 languages. More recently started the incredibly successful Breathing Project in New York, highly popular non-profit organization. He calls himself a yoga educator or yoga cowboy even. He's highly outspoken on many issues of modern yoga, including the teaching standards and teacher-student relationships. He's a courageous, honest and highly needed free thinker in the yoga world, becoming increasingly dominated by established discourses. Welcome to the Keenan Yoga podcast, Leslie. Um, can I just ask you how you first got into yoga? Um, well, it's interesting. I was, I was just, uh, going over this in one of my online lessons that was dealing with more philosophical issues. And when I, when I think back, it was really the, um, sort of philosophical Eastern way of thinking that made me open to taking my first yoga class. So there was always that interest in that side of it from from the beginning but when i took my first yoga class in 1978 here in new york it was at the invitation of my father who had been taking classes uh there uh, at at the center on 24th street which is still there uh and so the first class i took was a shivananda yoga class at their center um and uh it sort of really rocked my world uh, because in the Shavasana, the final relaxation, and they do a, a, a rather lengthy one in those classes where you do this whole sort of tense release thing through your mm, body mm. on the way to to the final relaxation. Um, it was probably the first time in my life I ever had intentionally relaxed, or let's just put it <laughs> this way, laid down on my back with the intention of doing something other than sleeping or you know the right. other things one does one does in a bed, but but yeah. that was you know and I was I was what was I twenty years old right and so it was kind of earth shattering and and I signed up for a beginner's course and within a year the summer after that in seventy nine I was already up in Canada taking my first uh, teacher's training course with Shivananda but the right. philosophy is what really um, I think made me open to a lot of the things I heard in the class and then learned was uh, connected with yoga. And that was there from the beginning. Mm. And then your training with Shibananda, or because I think your your kind of mentor was was TKB Deshikachal. Is that right? He was, but I I, I met him ten years later. I, I okay. was a, a Shibananda teacher at the beginning. Right. Um, mm. I I started teaching here in New York and hanging out at the ashrams. Uh, I, I also came out of a theater background, so I had some skills in uh theatrical production which came in handy because they were doing all these festivals at the time in fact 
the summer of my first training in 79, there was a big festival they had up in Canada at their headquarters, north of Montreal, uh, called the Festival of Inner Light. And I helped to build the stage. And then I, you know, and I was talking to the people who were organizing. And I said, so who's your stage manager going to be? And they would go, like, what's that? And I was like, the person who manages the stage, you know. And it's like, uh -oh, okay. So I stayed on past right. you know, my intended departure uh, from the teacher training uh, to basically help them produce and manage this, this event because I had uh -huh. done that sort of work already. Um, and so, you know, my, my skills became sort of uh, uh, recognized and, and valued at the ashram. And so I ended up down in the Bahamas for a while on staff there. And eventually I got sent to India uh, in the very beginning of 1981 uh, to help produce a teacher training down there. And I actually took sannyas. Uh, and right. that was a very quick track through the ranks um, at the time. There was usually a whole period of brahmachari and all of that. But so I was just so annoying to Swami Vishnu. I think he just initiated me just to shut me up. And so he did. And um, I, I rather soon after that, in March of 81, got transferred to Los Angeles to be the director of the Shivananda Yoga community there. Um, and that's where I eventually left the Shivananda organization a year and a half later and began working more in physical rehab, sports medicine kind of world, which, which in Los Angeles at the time was very, very, uh, prominent because the Olympics were coming in 1984. And so the right. whole immersion into the sports medicine world of, um, uh, biomechanical analysis and body work and looking at hundreds of x-rays, uh, that all sort of came into my life um, uh, rather quickly because the woman I ended up living with, my girlfriend at the time, was uh, an athlete uh, and she was good friends with this doctor who had started the Sports Medicine Institute, a doctor mm. named Leroy Perry. He's a chiropractic orthopedist and I learned a lot from just hanging around him and watching. That just kind of took me into the anatomy realm a lot more um, uh, deeply than I ever mm. could have been. And I learned so by absorbing. Yeah. Immediately yeah. you were you were kind of thinking yoga with anatomy very early on then. I mean, much earlier than um, before any, I, anyone before else. I, I yeah, before I yeah. knew any anatomy, I was thinking, because I was, you know, see, when you, when you teach a method like Shivananda, or Ashtanga for that matter, where the form is fixed, you know, you're teaching the same yeah, thing right. to everyone who mm -hmm. comes in the door. Because the mm. form is fixed, the differences in the way people are able to accomplish the form are very, very much in evidence. Mm. And, and, and the same is true of Shivananda, because it's a set mm. sequence of postures. Mm. And, mm. and so I began looking with a lot of curiosity at people's bodies and the way they moved mm. and breathed and all of that, wondering what it was that allowed this person to do this thing easily and this person to right. have such difficulty with it. Mm. And so the curiosity was there. And then when I began learning anatomy, that began explaining a lot of the things that I was seeing. Because, oh, right, because this thing is attached from here to there, and then it goes to there. And if it's tight, they can't do that thing. So it was just that way of, of, of thinking that I already had that yeah, right. you know, a lot of when I plugged in a lot of the information I was learning, uh, it began to explain what I was seeing and also lead me to start experimenting with different sort of workarounds for people so that they could build some more basic skills or awareness or flexibility or strength that would accomplish that allow them to accomplish to do 
postures. And at a certain point, you can experiment your way right out of the Shivananda organization because you got to teach. <laughs> you yeah. got to teach the class. You know, you've yeah, got to yeah. teach the class. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think it's interesting because at first it definitely piques your interest, right? Like you've got like this, all these bodies that do something differently. So it gives us kind of like begs the question as to anatomy straight away. But then as you start getting further into it, you kind of, yeah, like, you kind of sell yourself out of the equation, really, of teaching a, a set system altogether, don't you? How did you get? How yeah, you exactly. Get into, um, yeah. Uh, what about the uh, the uh, vini? Well, do they still call it vini yoga? Uh, in certain parts of the world right. and with certain teachers, that's a whole other conversation. Right, okay. Yeah, I'm but, sure. Um, okay. But but you know this process I just described of of modifying and adapting and and really trying to make the yoga relate more to the individual rather than the individual to the, the system. Um, I was not without knowing it. I was moving very strongly in the direction of, of Desipachar's perspective and his approach. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because in those early days in Los Angeles, I became friends with someone who I'm still friends with a guy named Larry Payne, who uh, is a student of Desipachar's and he and Richard Miller are the two founders of the international association of yoga therapists, IAYT. And um, at the time, he wasn't quite there yet in his own practice because he had started just a little bit before me. Um, but he had met Desika Char. And it must have been in 1981 where I met Larry. And he had just recently returned from a trip to India where he was visiting all the sort of major teachers, Iyengar, you know, uh, the um, the Adam in Lanavala and, and in, right. in, in, in Madras, he visited with Desika mm. Char and a few others. And... Um, so he was talking about this trip and I'd actually heard of all of the people he had visited, except for this one guy in Madras named Desika Char. I'd never heard the name mentioned before. And he was most impressed with Desika Char. And I said, well, what, what impressed you? And he said, well, it's all in the breath. According to him, it's all in the breath. And that's all he said about it. But it stuck in my mind. Uh, and I forgot the name. I promptly forgot the name Desika Char, but I remembered the, it's all in the breath thing. And so, mixed in with all these observations I was doing, I was still teaching Shivananda at the time, I started really paying attention to the way people were breathing. And, and, and that sort of organized a lot of the other details for me. Because when people changed the way they were breathing, they it, it had a much more fundamental effect on all the other things they were able to do. Mm. And so that also, along with the sort of individualized adaptation stuff i was coming up with that breath-centered focus is also bringing me without knowing it or even remembering his name very much in the direction of desika char because without using the brand name vini yoga if you wanted to give a short description of what right. his approach was it would be yeah. individualized breath-centered yoga yeah yeah i mean it's kind of ironic that the son of uh, krishnamacharya that you know the kind of obviously the proselytizer of modern yoga full stop is so unknown really you know um and well he used to be that, less known he's more known now but. more known but nevertheless yeah. you know compared to um say some instagram person you know in modern times you know <laughs> it's, right. it's a sad truth but you know he's got a huge precedence that he might he should have um but we understand, yeah. especially in Ashtanga, we understand that, you know, Krishnamacharya had this um, kind of trajectory where, you know, he yeah. started teaching in a certain way and he laterally in his later years, you know, it, it's, you know, common knowledge that he, you know, started teaching individually, you know, not the sequence that he taught Patavi Joyce, for example, or, or BKS Yengar, 
Um, so well, by the absolutely. Time, well, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't teach very much to Iyengar. Actually, Iyengar really no, developed no, most yeah. of it on his own. Yeah, exactly. But uh, exactly. but you know, it, one one wonders though if independence hadn't happened in India in '47 and the Shala in Mysore closed in 1950, if he had continued to have the patronage of the Maharaja, right, right, right. would he have carried on? Would, that? would he? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He would not have had to move to Madras. He would not. He had a family to support. This is not a swami. He had to make a living. Right, and so his sponsorship dried up, and he had to he had to go where the work was, and that ended up being eventually in Madras. And the work was working with people one on one from every walk of life with every sort of health condition you can imagine. So he became more of a healer, and of course, that's where you have to start adapting things. So the same guy that laid down the law in the Yoga Makaranda, or the way he taught. Patabi Joyce, the same yeah. guy who who laid down all those rules, you know, 20, 30 years later in Madras is saying the very essence of yoga yeah. above all else is that it must be adapted to the individual, not the other way around. It's hard to believe that all came from the same guy, but it did. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a shame to break the idea in a way that it's not delivered on high, that he didn't have the divine revelation of the vinyasa <laughs> They had more practical concerns of supporting a family that dictated. <laughs> well, same with the uh, BKS Yenga, right? That he, you know, evolved that system due to his move, you know, to Pune yeah. and the pe- the people that, you know, a lot. I think it was a wrestling, a lot of the wrestling community that he started kind of practicing on. Like, uh, uh, well, evolved there, there have, yeah, there have to be influences. I mean, you can't not right, be influenced exactly. by the things yeah, are, yeah. around you, whether well, it's yeah. Yeah. You know, Danish gymnastics or, you know, yeah. British physical you know, bodybuilding. You know, I mean, you know, right. Krishnacharya is yeah. fairly yeah. well traveled in his day. The Maharaja sent yeah. him around. You know, he sent him to Lonavala. He sent him to, you know, all the places where they were doing this this work. It was all part of the nationalist movement as well. It's, it's important to remember the political side of what was happening at the time and the degree to which mm-hmm. the Maharaja wanted to. To, to demonstrate that these native mm. systems of health were, it was the same as the homespun movement. You know, we can wear Indian cloth. We don't have to d- depend on imported clothing, you know, and then Gandhi was all about that. And in, in a way it was like, yeah, we have our homespun systems of health too. And that was part of what the Maharaja yeah. was promoting yeah. by in a, the in demonstrations. A way, yeah, we're having a resurgence of that now, I think in India as well, in a way. You know, well, yeah, but it's 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 got a very dark side right now. The Hindu yeah, yeah, we, yeah, 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 yeah. We can talk about that maybe a little bit later. But yes, it's an interesting one. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Let's just—I mean, for people that don't know, uh, you know—and this is mainly an Ashtanga-based podcast, although I'm trying to mm-hmm. broaden the context sure. of it. Um, you're, you're still with with the DK, DKV kind of camp of of doing yoga, or practicing yoga. Well, I don't really think there is a camp, frankly. Right. Um, the um, the attempt that Desikachari made to hand things off to his son, Kaustab, was, in my view, a spectacular failure and perhaps the best demonstration we have of early-onset dementia, um, which, of course, is what he died from um, way before his time. Um, and And so his insistence on trademarking the term Vini Yoga and attempting to control it from the top down, um, given the fact that he was literally in, in diapers when 
most of us, or had not even been born when some of the more senior people were studying with his father. You know, um, the, the, the theme of, of, this is Calstub, yeah. yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. He, he's, had his, he's had his own troubles, not too different yeah. from the revelations about Batabi Joyce um, or, you know, Iyengar was never really accused of sexual impropriety, but he was, of course, not the, not the gentlest of, of teachers no, in his yeah. day. Well, well, he was not treated gently by Krishnamacharya at all. Exactly. He was, yes, he was yes, abused yes, yes. by Krishnamacharya, you know. Um, so, right, so, you know, there is no camp. There's right. Okay. There's the principle, the, the particular principle, I suppose, of vinyasa of placing the breath. That lastly was uh, the kind of expanded, I suppose, from, from the early days when there was a set sequence. And lastly, Krishnamacharya mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. placing different vinyasas with a breath. With still with, I'm mean, just trying to kind of, I suppose, give a little small window on. Um, Sure. Uh, you know, the teaching that you've been exposed to, I guess, you know, mm. probably you could yeah. do that a little bit better than I think. Well, well, sure. But it was all filtered through my relationship directly with Jessica Char, which had right, to do with right. who I was. So right. everyone got something else. Gary Kraftsau got something else. You know, Richard right. Miller got something else. Um, you know, all of these, uh, all, uh, and, and some of the Indian teachers who, you know, like, like Navtej Johar and, 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 and Sriram, you know, they had a very different kind of relationship with Jessica Char because they, you know, they, they were, they were Indian and a lot of them were also engineering students while Navtej was a dancer. So everyone had their own mm-hmm. interaction and the own, their, their own sort of set of information that, that they were given based on who they were and what their background was. And that's why, you know, if I were to describe, again, this individualized breath-centered approach of death, sure, you have to put individual first and breath second. Because for some people, bringing too much focus on their breathing doesn't serve them. It makes them anxious if they have a trauma right. background or something like that. Right. So as much as he and his father valued the centering of breath in everything that was done, um, and, and he would say things like, Deskachar would say things like, you know, if what you're doing physically in your practice is so intense and demanding that it causes you to lose connection with your breathing and the quality of your breathing, you're not actually doing yoga anymore. You're doing calisthenics or gymnastics. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just mm-hmm. means according to that, that definition. Right. According, not, right. according yeah. to his definition of yoga, it's yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and so in spite of, of making a statement that strong about the breath, what would trump that would be if the person, the individual, would not benefit, at least not right away, from that focus on the breath. You have so many other things you can do with them. You can chant with them and not even mention the breath, just have them make sound, or you can just have them move and trust that the movements of their body will will naturally generate breath and some kind of coordination so you have to put the individual first uh in desigachar's perspective even before the breathing right and that's my understanding of it hmm. Hmm. so the individual even has a primacy before yoga really even the yoga method as it were or but for him <clears throat> for him that was yoga yoga is relationship according to him right so the the other thing he would say in that direction would be for the teacher, the object of meditation is the student. <clears throat> and that's where the yoga happens in the connection, in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Well, this is a nice sojourn onto your uh, your interest in the student teacher relationship, which you know I kind of think is going to very you know very important in your, in your current you know teaching from what you write about, right? Well, sure, and it goes it goes to you know a political stand I've taken against regulation and things like that. Uh, to you know, just to backtrack keep that, slightly there, that, yeah, you yeah. were you were quite. I just kind of backtrack. You were quite into yeah. regulation at one point, weren't you? So what's changed no. there? Let's go to the. Let's, I was never into regulation. Oh, I, I thought you wanted the stand. I thought you wanted the standard of uh, uh, regulation of yoga. Okay, I can understand where that would be. Okay. I, I'm very happy to set the record straight because yeah, please do. It's easy to th- yeah. it's easy to think that because I was one of the people in the room. Uh, when we came up with those 200 and 500 hour standards. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I was not, I was not happy about, I was not happy about another yoga organization, namely the Alliance, the Yoga Alliance, forming to administer those, those hours. I wanted but to be. Someone, completely... someone has to, doesn't they? No, actually, no, because. A complete, see, I'm a, I'm a free market capitalist. I'm just going to say that right now. And, I, and I know that's used as a slur against people. Um, but I believe in the freedom of, of the market to find its own level, depending on what you're doing. Now, if we had simply put out good information about these standards and what they were and said compliance with them is completely voluntary and it's up to the training programs to communicate directly to the students who enroll in those programs and to the public who are being taught by these teachers right. to what degree we, we, we agree with these standards or depart from them or what our version of these standards are, then you know the, what, the, what the market would have come up with was like uh, eventually a Yelp-like solution where you can get reviews and feedbacks because there would have been a demand for it. Right. And okay. there would have mm. been a way to make money from it in a transparent, mm. honest way, uh, instead of what we have now. Now, now I will say that the alliance under previous leadership, not the current leadership, was very much in alignment with that way of thinking. And that's when they got into changing their corporate structure, their nonprofit structure. It's so also like, it strikes me what you're saying is more democratic as well, isn't it? Because you're allowing the public to decide ultimately, like by by voting with their feet in a way, rather than this top-down sure. body that says, "Well, we know what yoga is, and we're going to put it on you." You know, um, exactly, exactly. And and you know, the 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 good stuff will float to the top, and the crap will sink to the bottom. Well, actually, in in Ashtanga, it's different. You're supposed to have the Ayurvedically formed poops that float to the top, but that's a whole other metaphor. Um, I was aware of all of <laughs> yeah. that in the early days, you know. Um, we heard all this stuff coming out of Mysore about how your poop should look. Anyway, um, the the thing I was about to say about the Alliance is under the previous leadership, they recognized the need to keep the government out of the business of regulating yoga. Now, in Great Britain, it's a very different thing. There, People are more comfortable with a higher degree of, of sort of socialist governmental intervention into industries like yoga and whatever else. And so, you know, the wheel and all these other, I mean, there's this whole controversy now about about how much the government should be involved in the regulation of yoga. In the States, we have a different ethos that we still possess to some degree, which is like, 
leave it alone. If it's not broke, don't fix it. And 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 so the Yoga Alliance actually has done some very good work uh, on a state by state basis here in the U.S. When they tried to regulate teacher training programs as vocational training, the same way you'd regulate a bartender school or a hairdresser school or something like that, they were able to keep that from happening. Um, I, I fear that 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 the priority on the advocacy has really really gone on the back burner right now with. The alliance, and I, I honestly don't know what what principles they're operating off of at this point. I've had this conversation endlessly with the current leadership, and you know, I get no good answers. Um, they're 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 in a tough situation because you know, yeah, of of what's been happening, and and you know, their base is being cut from under them because you know, people have more important things than worrying about their alliance dues right now when they can't pay their rent and they're closing studios left and right. You know. But they, they have extended the online exemption for in for contact hours. And that's gonna have to oh, become yeah. permanent. That's gonna have to become permanent. So yeah I, yeah, I don't know. I mean the thing is, I mean, I guess you're you're hoping that there's a trusted body of authority rather than kind of giving the authority back to the public to decide in a way, which is also potentially risky, you know, because well, you're coming for an A training, aren't you? You're coming for A training, I suppose uh, with your idea of the reviews. That the yeah. right posthumously a review, but then you've done it in a way. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's like well, you you, well, know, you don't know, and then you don't know what you don't know until until you find it, right? And so it's yeah, yeah. But but in the end, if you have good, uh, well designed data collection, you know, people who try to game in a system or people who may be motivated to to lie about their experience in their teacher training program, that all. That all can get sorted out, you know. Um, and you know, I mean, speaking as I am to someone who's deeply involved in the Estonga community, I, I think we can agree that if you vest too much authority in some hierarchical structure, um, whoever is at the top of that structure, uh, it will it will bring out in a very strong way whatever flaws or inconsistencies or you know, hmm. unethical tendencies they have. Um, so I don't think I need to say more about that. <laughs> it's been discussed <laughs> yeah. endlessly. Yeah. yeah, we've discussed it quite a lot already. With I'm sure you have. Yeah, I'm sure you yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember how we got onto that from the, the student-teacher relationship, but, um, you know. Because that, okay, because, yeah. because the if you if you bring a third party into the student teacher relationship whether it's a governmental agency or an insurance company or anyone else even when even when somebody else pays me as a teacher for a third party's lessons that that really does complicate things a little bit you know um so keeping those relationships direct and free from interference from third parties is sort of the ahimsa ethos that would underlie the ethical argument against regulation. So it is about the student-teacher relationship and, and keeping it, respecting so how, it and, 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 right, and okay. protecting it. Yeah. So how would the, how would the, um, the third party produce a violence in that relationship? Um, by restricting the freedom of the student and teacher to have uh, a, a a volunt to enter into a voluntary relationship where both of them are able to exercise their agency uh, freely, 
Um, and this goes into a whole other discussion about the abuses of the student-teacher relationship, which we can certainly talk about. Um, yeah, and even the logistics when you bring a, about teaching currently, because, I mean, obviously, you know, originally you had that, Krishnamacharya latterly, you know, especially latterly taught one-to-one. But, you know, and that was the way the yoga was always taught, right? You know, you had a yeah. teacher, you had a one, one student yeah. and one teacher, and they knew each other. I mean, right, right now we have a system in Mysore where, I mean, increasingly, um, you know, there is very little recognition of the student, right? Because there's so many people. But, I mean, um, I know that Sharat would argue that it allows everyone an experience of, um, you know, experiencing the method. So, I mean, what you're mm. talking about logistically is very hard if you want to expose yeah. yourself to, you know, many people, right? Sure. Like you're, and the demands on your time and attention where you have to relate to each and every student as an individual, right? Sure, sure. And do it ethically and in a way that doesn't harm. And, you know, I don't know. It's the, the thing about the, okay, let's, 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 let's project a, a possible historical scenario. Let's just say... Mm-hmm. When Krishnamacharya moved in the 50s to Madras after the shala was closed, uh, let's just say there was an existing agency whose job it was to ensure the safety of yoga students and regulate the spaces in which yoga was taught because you have to have so much square footage, you have to have so much lighting, you have to have uh, so much toilet facilities, you know, whatever. You have to have uh, insurance. You have to show the certificate of occupancy of the building to make sure you're zoned to be doing this activity. Okay, do you think Krishnacharya would have put up with that? Do you, do you, I mean, do you, do you think that we would have what we have now, um, you know, in terms of the people that were trained in that era, Deskachar and Mohan and, and you know, uh, Srivatsa Ramaswamy and all those, all my colleagues and myself, I mean, you know what? What if you know the only way people could could think of paying for his services were to get some kind of you know insurance coverage uh, and third party payments and all the the hoops you have to jump through to do the billing and the this and the that? You know, I mean, it's it's a crazy kind of juxtaposition of of circumstances to think of. But you know, if he wouldn't have put up with it, why should we? You know. I should, I should be free to invite someone into my living room and teach them a yoga lesson without the mm. government getting involved in that, mm. you, know? you know? And we can certainly talk about the, the ethos of the student-teacher relationship and all of the issues that have come up with people who have abused that. that there, there's definitely a conversation to be had, you know? I mean, this is, uh, yeah, this is definitely how yoga started to get kind of more kind of into the political role. Sure. All together, right? You have this kind of organic creativity, and now that's being, you know, curtailed more and more. By, uh, it, 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 it is by people whose whose mission it is to protect the public from abusive yoga teachers. Well, the, and, you know. the establishment is just getting stronger. Let's say, I think, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But there's there's also an establishment within the yoga world that's not governmental. There's certainly, you know. Um, uh, digital lynch mobs who are very well willing to come after you if they think you've you've violated whatever they think their ethical standards are, you know. Mm-hmm. And we've we've seen that happen quite a bit. There's this the whole thing going on with cancel culture and all of that, and you know, right. uh, they they've come after me certainly. Have they? Right. Oh, <laughs> sure, of course. Just in, recently too. 
you know, um, because I, you know, I don't tow, I don't tow the line. I look here, here's how, here's how I would put it, you know, and I'm willing to sit down and talk with anybody like in the same room, in the same space, well, six feet apart at least, but, you know, um, or online, it doesn't matter at this point, but having a dialogue about these things is essential. Um, dialogue between people who don't necessarily agree on everything is really essential. And the problem is some of the people who don't agree with me don't think I should have a right to speak or yeah. teach mm. or interact with students at all, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's a problem. Um, and, and the, the, the reason they feel that way about me is that this is the way I frame the conversation. I agree a hundred percent that in the student teacher interaction, the responsibility for the safety of that interaction lies more with the teacher than with the student. There's no question that that's true. It's not a 50, 50 thing. It's like, mm, mm. you know, I, I, you don't, you don't start this discussion by saying, well, the student and teacher are equally responsible mm. for what happens in that situation. Mm. Okay. It's not, it, the, 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 the teacher definitely has more than 50% mm -hmm. of that responsibility. So the number, if you could assign a number percentage wise right. is mm -hmm. definitely more than 50, but you know what it's less than hundred. You see, sure. and yeah, at the, at the yeah, mere, yeah, at the yeah. mere, su but, but that's the problem. That people, people didn't like that. Me. No, no, they don't. Because at the mere suggestion that the student has some agency in that situation, I get called a victim blamer. I get called someone who blames people right. who have been truly victimized in these right, situations okay, okay. for what, for what happened to them. Right. Right. Okay. So mm -hmm. now, see, apply this to the Ashtanga conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, no, I with, I've already done, with, done with, that in my with, head. With yeah. KPJ, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were people who kept going back after he checked their Mulabanda, right? And yes, you can say, well, they had cognitive dissonance, they had abuse in their background, they had all these things right. going on, and yeah, that's yeah. all. That's all true. It's all true, and it it definitely. And this is the conversation. It definitely affects people's ability or willingness mm -mm. to assert their agency in a situation like that, to say no, or to view yeah. it even as abuse while it's happening. There's no question about that, you know, and I look, I'm a clinician. I have worked for many decades, one-on-one -on -one with people. I made my living as a body worker for most of my career, not as a yoga teacher. You know, it's only since the book came out that I've been traveling and teaching these large groups as much as mm. I have. Right. But what I can tell you from my experience as a clinician working with people's bodies, with my hands, with their breathing, with the interactions with them, is I know how trauma lives in people's bodies. I know how it distorts uh, their perception of what's going on. I've had to be personally very, very conscious of that in the interpersonal dynamics that I have exercised in. And, and I've had to learn, sometimes the hard way, when I made mistakes about that really learn. Okay. But this is like, we're talking maybe 30,000 hours of clinical hours of me working one-on-one -on -one with people in that mode. That doesn't include teaching classrooms and workshops and things like that. That's a lot of hours. And, and so I have a little bit of experience about how people embody their development and, 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 and 
have difficulty expressing themselves and and actually using their breath to get it to come out their through their throat and out their mouth to say something that's really difficult in a situation where someone else is in authority. I really do understand that. And and part of my understanding of that is that there's always at some point a choice that can be made that's different than what your um, nature or nurture would have programmed you to do. Right. And this is this goes to a very deep philosophical discussion about the nature yeah. of human of being yeah. a human, you know, and the false alternative of nature versus nurture is really what people get stuck on, you know, because it's not it's not nature versus nurture. That's not the only choice. It's nature and nurture versus volition versus free will. Well, also, we have the yeah, capacity the, to choose the possibility of free will in the first place. You know, so a lot of people a, don't believe it exists. A lot of people, a lot well, of smart people don't believe it exists, that it's an illusion. Also, you have, to a degree, you have that certainly that tendency within the whole idea of karma in the first place. You know, I'm going to leave out mystical, because uh, karma, if you think about it, the doctrine of karma is the ultimate victim blaming strategy, right? You can't, I don't think you can bring <laughs> okay. that into this discussion. I don't think you can bring the pre existence of the soul in previous lives and the karmas they've accumulated, you know whether it's agami, sanchita, or parabdha karma. Okay, I know about karma. I know about the doctrine of karma, all right? But if you bring that into this discussion, all right, how is that not the ultimate victim-blaming thing? Because you have to take into account the karma of the, of the victimizer, you know? And even, even if you leave that out, even if you leave that out of the discussion and only take this life as what's given and don't accept or at least talk about what could have come before or what's going to come after, okay, how does the person who's doing the victimizing, how does their upbringing, how does their abuse at the hands of their abusers when they were young not figure into the discussion, right? Because people talk about free will as if if the victimizers have it and the victims don't. Mm -hmm. As if the victimizer could have chosen differently based on his background Mm -hmm. of abuse. Like Mm -hmm. you look at Iyengar and how he treated his students. You know, BKS, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, beat, 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 kick, slap, beat, right? Kick, slap, a younger. Uh, yeah, yeah right. I mean, so, but he was abused by Krishnamacharya. So, you know, does he get off the hook? Yeah, this is a, <laughs> it's a complicated discussion. I think we could kind of continue along these lines a lot longer. But what's your, I, going back on the, you know, more specific yoga topic. So how yeah. do you frame the current teacher relationships, teacher-student relationship that you have? Because you say that, that, as I understand it, that sacrosanct for your method of teaching, your current perspective, is mm-hmm. something to do with the conveyance of yoga. If anything is going to happen in the, the conveyance of yoga, is to do mm-hmm. with this relationship. Now, how does that look? Could you say something more about that? It, you know what? It looks better online than in person. Yeah, Okay. And the reason I say that is, number one, inappropriate physical touch is completely off the table. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so let's just, <laughs> put, let's just put, let's put that on a different table for now, for the foreseeable future. Okay? Um, so what you're left with... Virtual touching. Yeah. You know, but you can still verbally you do verbally, things inappropriately. Yeah. Well, yeah, right? yeah. You, can be, yeah. you could be giving very intrusive cues over right. zoom right so yeah. 
physical touch is is off the table let's let's look at what now the situation is i and i've spoken to many many people since this whole thing started um and as i said i do have some experience with online even before all this went down but the point is right now students are experiencing a far greater level of agency mm. in the student teacher relationship than they ever had right yeah. if i don't if i don't like what's going on in the class what can i do okay i can do that yeah, yeah. <laughs> i can stop the video i don't if i don't want to be seen happens you know yeah <laughs> if i don't want to see what the teacher or the rest of the class yeah, yeah. is doing i can turn that off too and if i really don't like what's happening i can hit that leave button right down there that red leave button it's an invitation to leave right how many of those students who would be willing to push that button would also be willing to stand up roll their yeah. mat and, yeah. and walk yeah. out yeah. of a room in the middle of a class right so just and you're just in your own home environment you're at home it's great i mean that aspect is great and there's some wonderful benefits and i'm probably on the side of that but just to play devil's advocate here how many times would i just picked up my mat when i didn't like something you know would i actually i don't staying, know also staying and persevering was also do you know what i mean like we also have that i mean there's always a plus and minus of everything i suppose but you know now it's like i mean i have it as well i mean people choose to do uh, you know i'm teaching a, a, a led primary series class and people will say oh i've only got this amount of time but i want to do i don't want to do this part of it or i want to do that part of it whereas you know we, we have this idea in ashtanga yoga anyway that you ought to do some closing sequence or you know there's a balance or some degree of balance within the system that you know right and um, Sure. So, what does anyone still say? Practice and all is coming, or has that been dropped from the lexicon? Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's still said. On, um, yeah, I think it's uh, really because you say that you're at your. Uh, if you say that you're advertising Matthew's book, if you say that now, I mean, I think there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of old school practices <laughs> that are still out there. Let's say, um, but yeah. you know, so I mean, to the way, I mean, authority has been the pyramid of authority has definitely been leveled to a great degree with, you know, and with online, that is definitely the case. And it has that, you know, I mean, now we have absolute volition in a way to, to really act as we want. Right. I mean, because as you say, no yeah. one's going to pick up the yoga mat and just walk out of the class in front of like, however many students, right. But you can easily, right. easily just turn off your video. But yeah. another way then it's harder to, it's harder to learn in a way because you don't, you're not compelled. You can do whatever you want, you know, like you can, you can take whatever, well, you could take yoga in any way you want, you know, and then you could sure. do this class, you can do that class, you do another class. So, well, yeah. couldn't you always do that, but wasn't it harder? Um, you see, which side would you rather err on? Yeah, okay. right. Mm. So, and that's, I think that's, that's a good question, you know, of putting more power and choice into the students' hands mm. based on the recent history of the yoga world and the conversations that have arisen out of these abusive situations, I would think that's definitely the side to err on. Uh, and, and to take that ethos back into live teaching when it does happen again, um, I think is le are lessons that many teachers who are currently teaching online are going to have to learn, you know, and then looking at what constitutes good teaching methodology. Because if it works online, uh, it's going to work even better in person. And, and by good teaching methodology, I, I, you know, when you look at the, um, 
the recommendation. For what you just said, though, for what you just yeah. said, though, I mean, in, in some respects, the whole point is that you have this buffer online. You know, like it, um, now, you know, like in person, yeah, you know, they're they're faced with you, right? I mean, and and say that they're a less confident individual, perhaps with trauma in their background, it, it isn't easy to turn Leslie off. Sure. Yeah, well, okay, but right? but online is never going to go away. It's never going to go away. It's always going to be an option. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. always going to be an option. And so there are people who would never even set foot in a yoga studio in the first place who are studying yoga now online. Mm-hmm. And they probably never will go back even when the studio is open again because they never would have gone in the first place. So this is not going to go away. It's, it's, this is a permanent part of the skill set and the ability to put yourself out there that teachers are going to have to have. You know, I'm doing a workshop. It's, it's sort of a, a, you know, a proof of concept coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's here in New Jersey. It's a local thing, which is partially opened again. Um, and there's going to be six students in the room spaced out and a live feed on Zoom at the same time, right? Uh, yeah. It'll be great to be in a room with live students again, which I haven't done since March, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and it'll be great to be able to offer it to anyone else in the world, really, who wants to have that experience of not just what I'm teaching, but seeing me interact with other people, which is very different than me just talking at a camera, which is what I've been doing. So I expect that's going to be the norm, you know, for anyone that's able to maintain a physical space in which yoga is taught to have this feed that's going to be going out. Um, and for sure. And, and I like being, what you said, that it has to be translatable as well. You, you know, in order to be able to teach, you have to be able to teach online, you know, as well. I mean, I think because it does, it does kind of test your skills as a teacher generally that you have to you rely on some kind of form of structure, technique and method other than just maybe kind of sure. charisma or, or, or kind of peer, peer pressure. Um, That'll, that'll only get you so far. You know, here's one thing. Here's one idea I had for live classes when we resume again. Have an intermission. Have an intermission. <laughs> like to go out. Yeah. Where the teacher leaves the room. <laughs> you don't have to do it in front of the teacher. Uh, it's like a safety valve. It's like a little, right. you know, let some pressure off. Uh, and it's like, I'm going to go into the break room here, have a drink of water, have a pee. Um, and I that anyone who... <laughs> that was generally said to be Navasana. <laughs> that's Navasana in a show. Yeah, that's, that's the intermission. Um, so, I yeah. mean, like have, having your your idea of the student teacher relationship, how does that translate online? What does that, I mean, you know, what does that mean? Uh, uh, it, how per, it means... how person, I mean, my particular worry with this and your stress of it in the originally okay. was a student teacher relationship immediately sounds. And, and one-to-one relationship immediately sounds quite personal. You know, it sounds like you're, I mean, and is that a bad thing relating quite personally as yourself, as a person? Or how much should you be the teacher in, in you know? Well, it, it means not exercising that from the standpoint of my agenda, but the students. Uh, I don't have this thing like, oh, you have to have a personal relationship with me and it has to be this thing or it's not yoga or it's not working. Um, and what has evolved from some of the online teaching I've been doing is I, I make it very clear how you know much I welcome feedback, whether it's positive or negative or anything, or questions, comments, you know, suggestions, whatever. Um, 
And several people have come up with things that they weren't necessarily comfortable addressing in a live interaction. And we've had, we've broken it off into a one-on-one Zoom thing, you know, and, and that's been very powerful, you know, but it's an option. Um, but also I think this is something is I had to resolve. About their personal journey or, or about your what method of teaching or? No, some experience they've had or some something that came up for them in the course of the conversation okay. or the practice or whatever. And, you know, and they wanted to discuss it. And and that's been uh-huh. wonderful. But this the important thing, I think, here for me to say is that I had to solve yeah. this issue long before the whole online thing was going on, you know, because at a certain point in my evolution as a yoga teacher, it became impossible for me to teach a group practice because I would come in with whatever sequence I designed and we were going with it. You know, it's not like a shtanga where you know pretty much what you're teaching every time you walk in the room. I was developing these different sorts of practices and things would be cruising along brilliantly until, you know, I made the mistake of actually looking directly at one person and seeing what they were doing to my beautiful sequence. And it was like, oh, you know, and then because because of my background as a body worker and my, you know, uh, interest in anatomy and all of this, I would I would go over and start working with, with one person during this group practice. And it would it was fascinating and it was a great interaction. You know, and of course, I had their permission to do this. And of course, everyone else stopped what they were doing and just <laughs> gathered around and started looking at what was happening. And, and so it became a clinic or a workshop or something, but not a, a group practice where everyone is cruising through from beginning mm-hmm. to end. And so, and I couldn't figure out how not to do that. I couldn't, I, I couldn't just put blinders on yeah. and just not look at people, right? I couldn't do that, but I couldn't keep calling it a, a group practice either. Mm. So I just started calling it clinic. And that's all I could do for many years uh, until I was able to really understand what my role is in that room if I'm leading practice. And it's not right. to keep every single person safe individually because you're going to run around like a madman at that point. And, and it's, very, it's a lot to put on your shoulders. Because what I had to realize is, number one, you cannot keep everyone in the room safe. It's impossible. It's not, it's not doable. Because if there's a person in my class regardless of how brilliant an instructor I am, who's determined to hurt themselves, they'll find a way to do it. You know, I have been that person, you know? I know yeah, what right. it's like to be that person, mm-hmm. and I know what it's like to have that person in my class. Yeah, I've seen people injure themselves in cat-cow, frankly. You know? So, number one, I know it's not possible to keep everyone safe because everyone has their own choices to make, regardless of what I'm saying or how I'm demonstrating they will choose their own way based on who they are to do that. It, you know, it'll be like, ooh, that felt good. A little bit of that felt good. A whole lot of it'll feel better. And it's like, well, that's the pathway to hurting yourself. So I, 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 take, I, I understand the limits of what I can accomplish, but I still take the responsibility very seriously by not giving cues that encourage that sort of behavior. You know, by inviting people. You're teaching group yeah. practice now. Right, okay. Oh, I think absolutely. I, right, okay. I've been teaching group practice all along, you know, um, but it's it's with this understanding that you have to balance the technique with inquiry, and and that's like the stira and sukha that a teacher needs to navigate. The inquiry is what creates the space, the safe space for people to have their own experience and have the practice be their own, to exercise their own. Uh, agency in the situation. Okay, that's the inquiry. That's the space. The boundary, the stira, the structure, is the technique I'm teaching. Because to teach 
the inquiry without the technique is to just invite chaos. There's just, it's no, there's, it's formless. And, and that makes people anxious. Not having any structure at all makes people anxious because it's like, yeah. am I supposed to do all the work here? What's your job as the teacher? You got to give me something to do. So that's the, the technique side of it. But if you teach technique without the inquiry, you're just teaching dogma. Mm. You're, you're just saying, this has come from on high. This is how it's done. And either you get it or you don't. And the only way to get the benefit is to get it right. Right. Mm. And to avoid teaching from that place means learning how to inject some inquiry into the, the technique. Because if you wanted to sort of sort of categorize the main difference between inquiry and technique is that there's no wrong answer to an inquiry. You can't get it wrong. It's whatever is true for you is what you're getting, even if what you're getting is like utter and complete confusion. At least you're getting that. You know, Desikachar used to say that the recognition of confusion is itself a form of clarity, which is a brilliant right. quote. Mm. It's, yeah. not, it's not avidya. We're not talking about avidya. Avidya, you said this before, is like you don't know what you don't know. That's different. Confusion is when you, is when you know what you don't know, and that's the beginning of all knowledge. Or, or yeah. self improvement, but that's quite right? a place to get to, right? I mean, I mean, that's yeah. that's that's the springboard that Socrates, as we were mentioning before the interview, was you know was, was talking yeah. about, you know, recognizing it, you know, that the exalted, quite, the exalted place a, of recognizing your own that, confusion. Yeah, that's yes. quite a place, though. But I mean, <laughs> the difficulty is with allowing, you know, autonomy of inquiry is, you know, again that danger that people can say, well, this is how I interpret it, you know, and it might be. It that's is, fine. You know, but then you but then you give them something else to do. Right? See, that's the thing. Inquiry looks like the way the way I structure a class with when, when I'm honoring the inquiry, yeah. and I always yeah. do this, you know, and you can I can put the slide control wherever I want between inquiry and technique. You know, there's some very yeah. technical things that I teach about the breathing and so on, right? Yeah, and you can get that wrong. See, that's the other thing. You can get a technique wrong. If you couldn't, it wouldn't be a technique. Like there's a wrong way to do Kapalabhati. Right? Yeah. So you can get a technique wrong. You can't get an inquiry wrong. And I recognize that. So the, the, what's the, the difference? Because that's a very, that's a very subtle difference, isn't it? Uh, between the inquiry, whatever you find, what, whatever you find the inquiry is correct. And that there's the right way to do it. Yeah. But you see, here's right. the thing. The technique, the technique oh. is correct in terms of the technique. It's not the right way to be all the time. Right. If I teach someone the technique of belly breathing, I'm not going to call it proper breathing. I'm not going to call it correct breathing. I'm not going to call it yogic breathing. I'm not even going to call it diaphragmatic breathing because the diaphragm also happens to move the rib cage. Okay. I'm going to call it belly breathing. I'm going to say it's a technique and this is how to do it. Okay. And there's all these different ways to do it and these different qualities you can have of belly breathing. But I'm never going to say, okay, now that you've learned how to use your diaphragm properly, you should be doing that all the time. Because Getting stuck in a technique is just another way of getting stuck. The whole purpose of learning a new way to breathe is to unlearn your old way of breathing. And once you've mastered a technique, you move on to the next thing and see if you can do that. So technique should be taught in context of what it is and what it isn't. Like people learn this, so people learn bandhas, people learn ujjayi, right? And then they're doing them all the time, you know? And it's like, well, no. I, and you've probably heard this. You know, women Ashtanga practitioners who get pregnant and, you know, expect to have like a really sort of easeful, natural childbirth because of all of their advanced yoga and breath practice, but have never bothered to figure out how to undo their mulabandha. 
The, the time the time to figure out that that's an issue for you is not when your baby's head is trying to crown. You know, and there, there's been a rash of very difficult extended labors and deliveries and even unwanted mm. episiotomies and C-sections in the Banda practicing yoga community. I run into it all the time. Really? Really? Oh, yeah. I've never well, heard that. Uh, well, how much do you talk about releasing Mulabanda? How much do you talk about relaxing the pelvic diaphragm? Unless you're Richard Freeman, you know, who really understands the anatomy. But I've seen that, you know, because a little, a little bit of something is good, a whole lot of it is better. And I run into people all the time who can't stop belly breathing. They can't stop doing ujjayi. They can't stop contracting and engaging their pelvic diaphragm. You know, and that's when you take a technique for, for, for what it isn't, for a way to be all the time. People who hold axial extension all the time, that's a big thing in the Iyengar community where it's like, mm -hmm. okay, you, you, want, you yes. want to lengthen your spine and you want to, yeah. you want to keep a little bit of that, that tadasana throughout all your asanas. That's, people cue that. And that's making your spine less responsive and less adaptable. And it's forcing movement into other too much movement into other joints that eventually will have problems like your hip joints mm, mm. right so it's mis it's it's misunderstanding what a technique is for that i think causes problems not the ability to master a technique right but and, in and any case you have to keep it in context is technique yoga no yoga has techniques yoga is a, a technique is a tool of yoga Right. Right. If we take if we take Patanjali at his word when he defined practice in the first sutra of the second chapter, you know, tapaswadhyaya ishvara pranidhana. Right. We, we there's this there's this threefold nature to it. Right. And the tapas, um, really, if we take the root seriously, I mean, it means heat. It means to generate heat or to purify by heat or to cook something. Okay. So what's implied there is that you're generating a certain amount of friction against your samskara. You know, you're 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 breaking yourself of certain habitual ways of behaving or thinking you're doing. Asana is an example. You know, now, asana has to have a quality of tapas to it. If you grew up in India sitting on the floor cross-legged your whole life, you know, coming into a yoga class sitting on the floor and doing sukhasana is not an asana for you. There's no tapas element. You've done it your whole life. You know? So there, there's that element of working against the grain, uh, hmm. and technique certainly comes into play there because you know how many people can do a correct kapal body right off the bat without any training? It's a very unusual way to breathe, you know. Um, bandhas, bandhas to some extent are natural, right? Because we we've been modulating the way we breathe and think and feel inside our bodies with our breath our whole lives, and so. We, we, we do have an instinctive way of holding ourselves if we're lifting a heavy weight or getting into a hot bathtub or, you know, having a difficult emotional experience. We're doing something like banda. We're, we're, we're creating interactions between our diaphragms all the time. You know, when we call it a technique, though, um, sometimes it's not so much about learning something new. It's about learning to be more conscious about something we've been doing our whole lives, right? So, but that's all in the realm of technique and, and tapas because you're 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 taking your behavior outside of its habitual sort of pre-programmed way of of of, of operating. Right, so learning, learning, yeah, learning a technique is a discipline essentially. Yeah, but it's done with self-awareness. It's done with swadhyaya. It's done with the spirit of inquiry, and it also has to be done with the recognition you can't change everything. You can't ch you can't change your body proportions. Okay. Yeah. If you're if you're sitting in dandasana, 
and you try to put your hands flat on the floor and only your fingertips touch the floor, how miserable are you going to be in an Ashtanga class when you're asked to do a jump group? Unless you unless you put blocks under your hands, right? That, that's not going to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, that, but, but that's not going to change. Your body proportions yeah, yeah. Right. are not going to. Mm-hmm. So that's Ishvara right. Pranidhana, right? You, you, have to, you have to surrender. You have to, you have to cultivate this attitude of surrender to the things that aren't subject to your efforts at tapas, to, to your efforts at changing things. And the so fact we, that Swadhyaya is part right of that. Now. Because yep. I'm not sure the Kanji most... was talking about yoga technique when he was talking about tapas, the learning asanas, learning yoga anatomy. Well, sure, but breathing is a tapas. Uh, right. You know, any, any, anything, if, if anything on the, the ashtanga, the eight limbs of Patanjali's yoga wasn't tapas, it wouldn't be there. I mean, ahimsa is tapas. <laughs> Telling the truth is tapas. Telling the truth yeah. without harming someone is especially hard. Yeah. Which is why they put it before satya, right? So, you know, it's it's if if it wasn't if it wasn't tapas, you wouldn't need the second chapter of of the sutra. You could just be the student who could experience yoga as samadhi. You know, Krishnacharya, his 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 view was that each of the four padas of the yoga sutra was addressed to a different student with different capabilities. Yeah, you know. And there was this, you've probably heard this, right? And, and so, you know, the, the student for whom the first chapter is addressed, to whom it's addressed, you know, he's already achieved some well, they uh, start, mastery now, now over starts, his now mind. Now starts yoga. Yeah, he's already... You know, now, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then right so away, yoga chitta vritti narodha. It's yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah. if you can do this, then that happens. Then, then yeah. the true nature of That's, the object yeah. becomes it's almost like, yeah. The 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 the, uh, the entry point is the conclusion, really, isn't it? Now start. Well, yoga. sure. This is yoga, <laughs> and that's it, really. Now, <laughs> well, the first chapter is yoga as samadhi. The second chapter is yoga as practice. Right. You know, the third chapter is well. You know, once you once the once the tapas once you have cooked everything that you can cook. In those first five limbs, right? What you're left with is what vibhuti. <laughs> it's the, it's the ash, yeah. right? And so that's the third chapter. So yeah, it, it kind of yeah. it's interesting to I'm look at it that way. Kind of conscious of your time, and I'm conscious of trying to get as much out of you as I can. I mean, what? So within the technique, <laughs> within the technique, what are you? Uh, what is the the role of breath? In the in a, in, a, in a kind of a succinct kind of way, in the role of the technique. Perfect question. Because, in my view, it it's our biological life force link to that exact formulation of yoga practice of tapas swadhyaya ishvara pranidhana. Because our breathing, our human breathing, which is unique among mammals, by the way. Um, uh, because there's other air-breathing mammals who don't have this um, this access to both the voluntary control of breathing and the involuntary, the autonomic. Okay, um, and so the fact that we can, for a period of time, within strict limits, take voluntary control over our breathing. Okay, does feed into this whole tapas thing. It's like we're changing the things we can. 
but the fact that there are strict physiological limits on that and beyond which we have no control. Beyond that, our breath controls us. That's the autonomic side of the breathing. That's the Ishvara Pranidana side of the conversation, right? Think of their serenity prayer. This is the serenity prayer in our bodies. The breath is the serenity prayer in our bodies. And the serenity prayer is, of course, this famous formulation that Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian, came up with. It's used by all the 12-step programs. It's that we, we're, we, we want to have the strength to change the things we can, the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. And there's your swadhyaya. And so for me, the fact that that's how our, the most fundamental rhythm that keeps us alive on a moment-to-moment basis, our breath, is embodying, literally embodying for us, if we care to view it this way, these principles of yoga practice, tapas, swadhyaya, ishvara, pranidana, means that the teacher literally is inside. That's our teacher. That's the teacher of yoga. It's how we keep ourselves alive. And the the power that people find in a practice like Ashtanga or any other practice where the breath is centered is that it will teach you that. Whether you're conscious of it or not, it will teach you that. It will teach you how much you can accomplish that you thought you couldn't, what the power of your breathing is, and it'll also kick your ass when you push too far. And it'll lay you out. When you, when you try to extend or push beyond the limits of what your body's breath, your physiology can, can tolerate. So it, it's, right. it's, a humbling, it's a humbling experience on that side when you run into the stuff you must surrender to. But it's an incredibly empowering experience in the other direction when you realize how much you are capable of that you didn't realize. So, you know, and the swadhyaya element really, to me, is is having the perspective to to know that that's what the process is. I think, you know, you can you can be a, just a student who's practicing and getting all this benefit without ever having to really introspect that deeply about what's going on or what's changing you. But if you want to teach this stuff, that's what you have to grasp is the 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 inquiry, the swadhyaya part of it. So there's no specific breath around technique. It's more just like the emphasis on breath different types of breath hmm. sure is that what sure. i'm getting i mean obviously a particular breath and a particular kind of modality with thunders and breath that go yeah. together and mm-hmm. that's one thing but i i, I kind of mm-hmm. trying to get a handle of how you're styling it and it appears that you're teaching different kinds okay. of yeah sure well different no, kind of I mean, anatomical techniques and breath i teach bond all the time but uh-huh. If I'm teaching it to a group or an individual, I take them through a whole process that ensures that they understand how to connect with and relax the structures that they're going to be engaging. So that I'm not just layering more tension on top of pre-existing tension they didn't know they had. So there's this re- there's this responsiveness that's important for the pelvic diaphragm, for the abdominal movements, for the rib cage movements, for the movements of the head, neck, and throat. So that if, if we use the, the ability to execute bandhas correctly as sort of a goal, then creating a... See, because vinyasa, you know, the term vinyasa comes from nyasa, right? Which is placement. And so it's not just a label for a way of practicing and flowing with your breath. It's an understanding of, of what order things need to be placed in. Not just within a certain practice in terms of what asana follows which, but what's the bigger arc? of skill acquisition? What's the bigger arc of learning how to get from where I am 
to something I want to accomplish? And how does that how can that vary for each individual based on what their starting point is? How many people are fortunate enough to know what their starting point is? So, you know, yes, I teach Banda. I teach um, some fairly technical things about Banda that's fairly anatomically informed. And it's done with the recognition that uh, people need to engage in a sort of an inquiry about where they're holding tension in these key places so that they know that they're capable of, of coming from a relaxed state into a state of, of useful engagement rather than, as I said, just layering some tension on top of some pre-existing tension they didn't know that they had. And I suspect this is what was happening to a lot of the, the women who have reported to me the difficulty in, in, in childbirth is that, you know, you've got all of this upward, we use technical term, all this upward apana is being generated with bandhas. Bandhas are about creating upward apana, right? Um, and that was one of the hallmarks of Krishnamacharya's teachings about the, the pranas. You know, apana is not just a downward moving force. Of course, that's how you pee, that's how you poo, and that's how you deliver a baby with the most powerful downward apana a human being can experience. Now, if your practice is all about the upward apana and you had a pre-existing kind of tension there, it's not just your nervous system that's doing that action. It's all the connective tissue that starts organizing itself around that upward, that upward action. And that's the connective tissue that has to stretch and release and, and really open up tremendously in order for childbirth to happen in 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 a in a an easy way that doesn't involve injury or or surgery, you know, and that's it's painful stuff. I mean, you know, that that hurts. You know that burn. You ever do this? That burning sensation in your lips. You try that. No, seriously, try that. And then imagine it happening in your in your genitals times a hundred, right? So there's got to be a lot of opening that goes on, and a lot of people don't don't encourage the 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 release as much as they need to, so that their the upward engagement is coming from a balanced place. So, yeah, you know, I teach the stuff. I, I can teach it technically, but it's in context. So the aim of your teaching is, is a, a sense of a balancing this active engagement with release. Is that what you're seeking? Well, what, what well would you sure. Think? I mean, we're using, we're using our bodies, we're using our muscles, and, and that's how muscles work in a healthy way. What, what, is, what is the aim of your teacher-student relationship? What, what would you like to see the you know the the best uh, you know conclusion of that relationship being? For whom? For which student? Oh, well, for you. First, for the student. <laughs> well, which student are we talking about? Okay, okay. That's, right. that's one of those questions. That's one of those questions that's just begging for context. You see, <laughs> we talked about that. <laughs> we should have said that previously, right? Okay, right. Yeah. So just to, so you're just trying to facilitate whatever they wish. The object of meditation for the teacher is the student. It can't be the teacher's agenda. The teacher's no agenda. only agenda is to be useful to the student. And it's got to be the starting point. And the objectivity you have there that you're not putting your agenda on them is you're simply teaching techniques. If, if, te if an emphasis on technique is what's useful for them, sometimes an emphasis on technique is not useful, at least in the beginning. I may have a technique in the back of my mind, but what is in the front of my mind is what is going to be useful for this person. Sometimes it's just having somebody sitting in front of them, listening, who doesn't have an agenda for them. That can be the most powerful yoga of all. I've seen Desikachar do it, you know, Absolutely, and I've seen yeah. him demonstrate this yeah. in front of large groups of people with someone on stage with him. And, you know, half the people like me are going, they're just fascinated. It's like, how is he? 
how is he getting such an intimate exchange with this person in such a short period of time? And I'm just fascinated by how he's doing it and how he's holding his body and how he's breathing and what he's saying and most especially what he's not saying. And I'm just, and then there's someone next to me and this is at least half, the other half of the room is going, where's the goddamn yoga? Where's the techniques? You know, I'm here to learn how to do therapeutic yoga and it's all he's doing is sitting on the stage and talking to this person. And they're like, where's the yoga? And I'm like, this is the yoga, right? So I've seen I've seen him do that, and and either you know it's sort of like either you get it or you don't, and a lot of people didn't. A lot of people found him very, very frustrating, um, and very you know secretive and evasive, and never got to the right. point. Right. Uh, and he was being Socratic, and he was you know using his his way of conveying something so that it wasn't it wasn't like knowledge or information coming out of him and going into your brain. That's just not how mm. it happens. It was him leading you around to a process of inquiry and thought that eventually you would get, oh, that's the lesson he was trying to teach us about. He didn't name it. He wouldn't write it on the board necessarily at first, but he would lead you around through your own process of inquiry to, to arrive at what he was trying to convey. And that's a, that's a very high level of uh, conceptual um, integration and and teaching that he was able to do and and that's what was missing the last time i saw him and that's when we knew his brain wasn't right and that was in 2009 right um because then then it was just him telling stories then it was just his long-term memory and he was telling all of these stories which were amusing and interesting for someone that you know didn't know him but they never connected they never led anywhere and that's how the few people in the room who who knew him well enough uh, to see what was wrong were very very alarmed, um, hmm. and that was the last time I that was the last time I saw him. So I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, Leslie, we try and keep these in a format of roughly an hour. We've gone over with you um, because yeah, you're very descriptive. Um, very able to, able to talk, let's say, um, which is great, you know. And, and I do it. Really, I do this for a living, you know. You if do, I can't yeah. Do you well, do it very well. I'm, I'm um, so but it's been, screwed, no, it's been, yeah. a, it's been a really, uh, a really fun chat. And um, just well, so people yeah. get, you know, basic, a basic idea of yourself. Can you tell me um, one inspiration you have, and maybe one? Um, I, I hesitate to say because I always say, and people don't like it, but a guilty pleasure. One thing that is an indulgence you have, and one inspiration you have, just to, just to round it out. Oh well, I, I'm I'm actually my guilty pleasure and my inspiration that I'll share with you are the same thing. The same that? thing. That's a surprise. Yeah, yeah, in, in the interest of <laughs> yeah. in the interest of time and being efficient. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. All right. I really enjoy watching the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championships. <laughs> Uh, it's mixed martial arts. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I and I, I've, been, I've been say- well. I, I mean, I'm not guilty about it, but other people would say like. Ugh. So yeah, I've been I watching the, it. Since I watched the Connor stuff. 93s. Yeah, well, of course, Connor. Yeah, over there, he's a big deal. Um, and yeah, so I've been watching it since '93 when they started it, and what I really connected with was the fact that. The uh, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys could take the biggest. There were no weight classes in the beginning. You you could be outweighed by a hundred pounds by the guy across from you, and without fail, you know the skinniest guy, Hoist Gracie, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, would wrap them up, take them to the ground, choke them out, or submit them. And that was like, wow, that's like the dark side of what I do to people on my bodywork table. 
you know, because like, you know, I, cause I understand joints and, you know, angles and, and the way the body is supposed to move. And they're like, oh, they're taking it like the way it's not supposed to move. And it's causing someone to tap out. Okay. And, and that inspires yeah, very obvious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That is perverse. And, um, you know, just the short <laughs> time that I've, that I've known you um, already, I'm surprised. Um, but it's been a wonderful um, interview with you. And thanks very much for joining me. And can, can you let people yeah. know where, where to find you if they want to continue this uh, Sure. Well, the easiest way is my my my, <laughs> my personal <laughs> website is easy. It's it's yogaanatomy.org. And I always have to say it's yoga anatomy with the two A's there. Right, there's two A's, a, yeah, yeah. There's, right. there's yeah. another one that's yeah. just no, yeah. yoga anatomy. Yoga anatomy, yeah, yeah. That's someone else, yeah. yeah. So it's yogaanatomy.org, and there you can find the, the online courses and the more recent teaching I'm doing on the union.fit platform, uh, which is what I've been recording since April, since, you know, the the um, the COVID thing. Um, and we got, you know, we got a lot going on. So yeah, all the workshops and stuff are there and there's a blog that I every so often post things to, and we're doing, Oh, we're doing a, a cadaver dissection lab in, in San Diego at the end of October, which we're very excited about. Uh, and we're going to be live streaming that from the lab. So that's really, really, yeah. I shall I shall be tuning into that. <laughs> That's how you learn anatomy. Hey, hey Richard right, Richard okay. Freeman's into the cadaver labs. Richard does oh, the cadavers all the right, time. Okay. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Maybe I should do yeah. that. All right, they can have my screen. well, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Um thanks very much for coming on. Pleasure. Uh, thank you. Absolutely. Right. It's really been fun. Right. Thanks for asking all great right. questions. Bye. Bye for now. Bye.